0: Dig that cheese slice with mustard out of your floppy drive and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Rory Blythe. This is Jeff Maceolek filling in yet again for Karen Cavallero here to announce show number 66 with guest Rocky Lotka. Recorded live Thursday, June 3rd, 2004. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's .Net. Training developers to work smarter and now offering hands on VB.NET and ASP.NET classes remotely. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine. Microsoft technologies in-depth for IT managers and developers online at www.code-magazine.com and now the man who 1145 what the hell were you thinking Carl Franklin
1: hey how you doing how you doing thank you very much thanks Jeff standing in for Karen this is Carl, and you're listening to another episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers. My partner in crime out there in Portland, Oregon tonight, Rory Blythe. How you doing, man? What's up? Uh, What's up with you? What you been yeah, doing?
2: Not much, you know. Just, just, just kind of hanging out and uh, sort of doing the the recovering from the kind of entire week awake that was Tech ed.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah, we had some I don't fun think I out slept there. At
2: all. You no, we had a good time. I don't think I don't think I slept, and I don't think I stopped eating junk food or uh, just kind of going out and doing everything. There was junk just too food, much to do. The
1: junk food never ends, there, does it?
2: No, it doesn't. It's, it's just kind of never ending. But it, it's good stuff. There was just simply way too many interesting things to do. Yeah. So I've actually been pretty exhausted this week. It, it's 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 my little recovery period. So I'm yeah. doing that and oh, cool. uh, working on a book and yeah. What's that's the about book? It. What's
1: the book you're working on?
2: I don't think I can actually say. At least I haven't. I haven't. What's it about? Let me go ahead. It's about computers.
1: Oh, good, good, good. Well, we yeah. look forward to that.
2: <laughs> I'd like to <laughs> narrow it down and everything, but I don't know if I can. So that has been an interesting experience. Yeah, cool. And uh, yeah, my work schedule has shifted from being awake all day and working to being awake all night and working, which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Not a lot happening here this week. Uh, I had a you know a week to regroup and ref you know get things going, yep. catch up. And uh, so that's exactly what I've been doing. We uh, had fun putting last week's show together, of course, and uh, TechEd was just a blast. We just yeah. had so much fun there. Somebody made a comment on a blog out there that uh, there that there are people out there who are spending so much time writing code and doing anything that they're, they don't have time to go speak or to go to conferences or anything like that, and that's kind of a shame. It's just you know, wish I wish I could clone myself. <laughs> Yeah. So true, but I've actually been writing some good stuff for an article that will appear in the MSDN uh, magazine in August. And it's kind of an interesting thing that I did, I, and uh, it's a chat program that uses web services, which mm-hmm. is kind of weird because you don't usually think of like a chat program as a stateless oh. thing. And the way that it works is uh, actually we I do the stateful, uh, uh, you know, the statefulness with a shared class or a class that has shared methods uh-huh. and shared properties and uh hey is that the dog you were talking about
2: yes actually <laughs> <laughs> that barking the in the background it's... is the dog that will never stop barking <laughs> ever see i didn't even hear it anymore you asked me about it and i, I wasn't even aware of the fact there was a dog in the background it, it's it's just background noise now it's like my heartbeat you know if the, if the dog weren't barking i think i were dead or something so
1: Jeez, well, we didn't I hate that dog. <laughs>
2: yeah,
1: really. And if you haven't read that post on your blog, uh, we should link to that. We'll link that one out because that was yeah. a great post. Anyway, uh, we didn't get much mail this week, but I did get a mail from uh, an email from um, Peter Wright. I don't know if you remember Peter Wright, but he wrote some books on objects uh, for Rocks Press, and then sort of vanished into thin air. And he's been doing some consulting, but he just. Uh, Sent me an email to say that he loved the show and he was listening to the one we were talking about, uh, you know, where we were doing reflections on connections. And I think Dan Appleman was talking about. Ken gets on a plane who, during takeoff, had to go to the bathroom so bad that he broke the door down to the bathroom because <laughs> they lock it during takeoff. Right. And I made a comment like, uh, you know, I would have just used the sick bag, and he misheard that as uh, Dan Appleman actually did use the sick bag. So, you know, I just want to <laughs> say if you're listening to the show and you're listening to the weird stuff, just get it right, okay? You know, just these little subtle differences can really mean a lot, you know, It depends on who did what and when, and if we're actually talking about something that's just weird or something that we did, so.
2: That, that'd be a bad time to get recognized. Yeah. You're Dan Appelman, aren't you? Yeah, you're the guy yeah, that that's peed right. in that and, sick and bag. You're <laughs> peeing into a sick bag. No, no, no. I'm that's... just going to go get my seat, yeah. <laughs> no, but that didn't happen. I'm saying if it, it didn't Yeah, happen, that's right, you know? right, right. Great, man, now we're starting rumors. Now someday. we're starting rumors. Bad. So somebody <laughs> just
1: came in in that little segment, they're going to think. <laughs> right. No, it's all in fun. So uh, you were talking about, before the show, you were talking about a website.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, the daily the daily... com.
1: That's it. What's that all about?
2: Uh, it's it's like this thing where people have been sending in uh, their really horrible experiences at work, specifically related to coding, it seems. Oh, okay. And um, I mean, I don't know if you know what WTF stands for. It's one of these internet right, acronyms. Sure. Yeah, a little dirty. And, what the fuck? Uh, yeah. That's basically what it is. And so people are sending this stuff in and some of it is just absolutely hilarious. It's really good stuff. So that's the T H E Daily D A I L Y W T F dot com. And okay. it is awesome. It really is very cool.
1: Alright, very good. And it's a <laughs> uh it looks like it's a dot text. Are you yeah, there dot, now? Are you reading thing. the class int wrapper thing?
2: Yeah, I'm looking at class int wrapper. <laughs> I've had the pla- yeah
1: yeah. <laughs> um It reminds me of when I was doing Carl and Gary's VB homepage and we had an upload section and people were uh, sending us their projects, you know, to to post online. And we uh, we got a steady stream of this is my message box class, you know, (laughs) that simplifies access to the message box. (laughs)
2: Like it's so freaking hard. (laughs) Yeah. And it was
1: like, you know, nine megabytes zipped, you know, (laughs) it's just unbelievable. So that's
2: great. Yeah, well, that, the, that's, what, that's what we're seeing here, though. Yeah, I, the, oh, right,
1: the class int wrapper.
2: Oh, no, that isn't what we're seeing. Oh, my God. Okay, I'm looking at this now for like the first time, and it, and it looks like...
1: Oh, it's a string, right? It, oh, it's two the string. What are they doing?
2: It's dumb, so it's you, a two so string. So you pass your <laughs> int in, yeah. and it returns it as a string. I don't know what's going on there, but yeah. Yeah, the idea of a wrapper from message box is ridiculous. It'd be like wrapping string, right. you know? yeah. Or wrapping char. I mean, why yeah. would you do that? What the hell's wrong with you? Yeah, I I, I can't deal with that.
1: Well, we're going to have to uh, investigate this daily WTF a little bit further. Always looking for interesting and funny things to talk about and to to read. So we actually have uh, uh, something we're going to do for the dumb emails tonight. All right, well, anyway, that's the uh, dumb emails theme, and uh, we don't actually have any emails that people send us, but we have something better. We'd like to uh, publicize a little site that um, Jeff Macyolic, our sound guy, found, uh, or he 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 turned me onto it. Anyway, it's called uh, Computer Stupidities, and it's at www.rinkworks.com/stupid. And these are real transcriptions from tech support calls that people have had. Jeff, are you in there? Okay, yeah, I'm here. So we're actually Jeff and I are going to play out a couple of these, and so let's. <laughs> so they're in categories, right? Yes. These tech support calls are in categories, and I like the category smoke.
0: Yes, smoke is a good when, category.
1: When a computer starts smoking, it's typically an indication of a problem more severe than the one tech support could remedy. That's at the top of the page. And uh, for example, customer says, "My system's on fire. What do I do?" You know, uh, my terminal is smoking and shooting sparks. Should I unplug it? You know, these kind of questions. But I like the third one, uh Jeff, why don't you Absolutely. be the tech support guy and- Hello Tech Support, may I help you? Yes, monitor is working fine but has sparks and smoke flying out back. Is okay? Blink. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, um, my printer smells funny and it's smoking. Uh did you turn it off? Well no, I was told never to turn it off without ruining it through without running it through shutdown and it won't go through shutdown. Mm-hmm. so keep in mind these are actual actual transcriptions of things here how about the one we were uh we write banking software for mini computers our help desk got a call from a customer who was new to mini computer operations the call went something like this uh there's smoke coming from the back of the computer what should i do get
0: out of the computer room and call the fire department
1: should i make a backup first get
0: out of the computer room and call the fire department
1: Okay, but shouldn't I at least run the
0: shutdown procedure? Get out of the computer room and call the fire department.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The next one guy says, I work at an ISP in the United Kingdom. The most shocking call I received came from a student at a local college here. He had received a CD from an ISP from an American friend. Hi there. I got this CD from an American and he said, oh, he's in the UK, so I should do a British accent here. Uh, hi there, I got this CD from an American, and he says his ISP is better than mine, because the calls are free, so can I uninstall it?
0: Uh, yes sir, that's your choice completely, but this is an American ISP? Because if so, I don't think it will work with your computer.
1: Uh, listen chap, I happen to be a computer student, I know exactly what I'm doing, so don't insult my intelligence. Click. And ten minutes later he called back, humbled. My computer exploded. What?
0: How did that happen?
1: Well, the CD didn't work, and I couldn't get through to the ISP, so I changed the computer to American power. <laughs> you changed the voltage switch to the, while the computer was on, causing the power supply to explode.
0: Oh, next <laughs> <that great>? one.
1: <laughs> A user phoned me and complained that her monitor was smoking, smelled of burning, and the display had gone wrong, and the monitor was too hot to touch. I suggested that she switch the monitor off until an engineer could look at it. And she said, how do I do that? (laughs) I think we found the problem. (laughs) How do I turn it off? Oh, boy. Hello, tech support. Can I help you? Oh, I think I did a bad thing. Okay, so tell me what's up. Well, my computer was running great. Everything was working fine. I had no problems whatsoever. Okay. So I decided to open it up and have a look inside. I saw these wires dangling all over the place, and there were gray flat ones and small red and black and yellow ones, and it seemed like they weren't connected to anything, so I decided to plug them all in. Uh, you mean you plugged them all in? What did you plug them into? Well, whatever I could get them to connect to. I saw saw pins sticking off some of the boards that didn't have anything on them. So I plugged all the loose wires in to make it run better. And then you. And so I plugged them all in and I hit the power button and there was this loud bang and a flash and a puff of smoke. And now it doesn't work at all. Tech support suppressing all emotion and turning deep crimson. Can you hold for a minute, please? Kaboom, explosive doesn't adequately describe the laughter. I related the story to some coworkers between gasps for breath. Several of the techs and I had quite the laugh fest while he was on hold. After about five minutes of eye-popping, sweat-beating laughter, I wiped away the (laughs) tears, took a sip of water, and came back to the line. I knew it would be futile to even attempt to troubleshoot it. So I said, okay, well, why don't we just have you wrap it up in the original packing material and send it back to us? We'll take care of the whole thing. And so another computer newbie learned that the extra power supply cables and unused IDE ribbon cables don't have to be plugged in for the computer to work just fine. <laughs> and uh, that's about all we, we have time for tonight. Well, so, Carl,
0: I think that we should make time on the next show just briefly for the okay. programming section. Some, some ah, stupid programming yes. ones. Yes. Next show. Absolutely.
1: And in the meantime, go to that site and we'll put a link to it as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. But now it's time in our show when we do a segment that we so proudly call the Google Weirdos. Weirdos. Google Weirdos.
2: Google
1: Weirdos. Google Weirdos. So I'll explain what Google Weirdos is. Google Weirdos is a segment that we do. Rory actually started doing this on his blog. He was looking for what people type into Google and then somehow make his way to his web log. So he does this by looking in his logs, uh, in his logs that, uh, for his web server, and he can determine what those search terms are that people type into Google. And so people have found out about it and have started contacting him through Google. So we're going to do two sections. The first one is the shout outs, where people are actually saying, hey, Rory, how you doing, using Google as their uh, free one-way email service. And... Um, the second one of the true Google Weirdos world, people will type in the weirdest things that they're looking for, and then somehow they match to his site and find themselves there, neapoleon.com. So, Rory, what are the Google Weirdos
2: this week? Well, starting out with the shouts outs, the very first one is relevant to everything you just said. It is, Rory, there is nobody left who doesn't know what Google Weirdos is. Trust me, nobody. <laughs> um.
1: <laughs> so <laughs> so he's implying that we don't have to say what it is every time because i think we should or maybe I, th- we should, I, think we should, I think we should too maybe we should just link to it so if you don't know what google weirdos is go to the link on our site and that'll we
2: should, yeah, just have the explanation up there and then people can deal with it later that's a good idea uh, so the next shouts outs is rory blythe always looks stoned and i really don't appreciate that because <laughs> i'm drunk i'm not stoned <laughs> all right there's a difference yeah, I don't like people talking smack like that about me. Okay, so that's actually, you know, the shout outs were, were, were not many this week, although it's the, it's the first week of the month. True. Months just started, and usually the first ones are pretty sparse. So these are the actual Google weirdos. The first one is somebody who searched for pictures of meth addicts and their bodies. Ooh. Um, like whatever floats your boat, you know. So I mean, you've that's got some, some kind of those
1: of- on your blog, do you, Rory?
2: I don't have any idea how that got to my site. I don't, I don't have a clue. The next one is sissy panty liner. Like, 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 you want the, like you want the macho one with big flames painted on the side and skulls with snakes coming in and out of the eye sockets.
1: Oh, jeez.
2: A little weird? I, I didn't even know there was a market for like, different types, genres of the product in question. What people
1: type into Google? It's just insane.
2: Next one is power enema. (laughs) (laughs) Like the regular kind isn't already kind of freaky, you know? Like what is that? With with one of those uh, uh, compressor hoses or whatever you use to take the siding off your house? (laughs) (laughs) Shh! The next one is uh, how to make a bathroom cute for cheap. And I was thinking, Hmm. you know, like maybe a little skirt or something. I mean, makeup. I don't know. I mean, dress it up. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Next one is breakdancing in Topeka. Hmm. That's one of those that just doesn't make any sense at no. all. I don't even know what else is in Topeka. <laughs> next not one is breakdancing. This this one is a little
1: weird. This There's is wheat.
2: There's wheat in Topeka. Okay. <laughs> all right. And hurricanes and tornadoes and the next yeah. one I picture is being said in like this high squeaky voice. It's just a little weird to me. Um, ordinary red doggy brain. <laughs> ordinary red doggy brain. This is something run of the mill. Uh, brain so often that they actually distinguish between ordinary and the strange kind of red doggy brain. I don't know. It's gross. So the next one is comments on collapsed lung. And I was thinking probably like I bet that hurts. You know I mean what else do you say about it, you know? That sucks. Ooh, bummer <laughs> <laughs> Guess it's time to quit smoking now. All right. Next one is breathing of squid. Breathing or breathing? Breathing. Breathing. Someone who's got a squid strapped to his face, you know? (laughs) Breathing of squid. And then the very last one is how to beat up geeks, all right? What you do is you take your fist, aim, punch repeatedly. It's not very complicated, all right? They're not really equipped to run away or defend themselves. I'm going to code my way out of this one. (laughs) No. (laughs) So <laughs> I'm going I'm going to erect a firewall. Yeah, I don't think so. Pow. Not that hard. So that's it for the week. Awesome. <laughs>
1: So, Rory, our guest tonight is none other than the one and only Rockford Latka. and uh, Yeah. Rocky is the author of numerous books, including the expert Visual Basic.net and C Sharp Business Objects books. He is a Microsoft software legend, MSL, regional director, RD, MVP, and Inetta speaker. Rockford speaks at many conferences and user groups around the world and is a columnist for MSDN Online. Rocky is the principal technology evangelist for Magenic Technologies, one of the nation's premier Microsoft Gold certified partners dedicated to solving today's most challenging business problems using 100% Microsoft tools and technology. How are you, Rocky?
3: I'm doing great. How are you? Doing
1: excellent. You were one of the, one of the earliest guests on our show. You were like show number seven or eight or something.
3: Yeah, it was uh, back, back when this was a small-time operation.
1: right. Yeah, and now we're at number 66, and we're still a small-time operation.
3: (laughs) That's not what I hear, but that's all right.
1: We just think we're bigger than we are. So, I don't know. Well, uh, what have you been doing lately?
3: You know, I've been uh, traveling around doing a lot of speaking, and when I'm not doing that, I've been doing the final editing on my uh, C Sharp uh, business objects book.
1: C Sharp? So, have you defected to semicolon land or what?
3: Uh, you know, there are people that have accused me of, of just that, but I, I wouldn't say so. I think, uh, I had a lot of reader demand uh-huh. for you know people that even bought the VB book and then said, you know, we're doing C sharp. Can't right. you do a C sharp book? And so I'm, I'm, uh, really doing it based on, you know, market demand, I guess.
1: Oh, cool. Cool. So, um. I was just waiting for Rory to jump in there. Apparently, he's not going to. It's a little well, bit. I, I,
2: I was thinking about calling Rocky a sellout, but I mean, would that be <laughs> would that be uncool? <laughs> no, actually, when 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 you said accused of jumping to semicolon land, I thought perhaps complimented him on his wise choice. <laughs> I wasn't sure if accused was necessarily the proper language there.
1: Well, he's a VB guy, though. So what can you say? You know, yeah, that's well, that's our, the way we look at it. It's okay. I mean, he can get better. That's okay. Yeah.
3: yeah there, there, there certainly is a uh, level of ownership of the community, I think, or or by the community, however you want to say that. Right.
2: Yeah. Well, well, can I start off with a question? Sure. Okay. I was I was talking to Corey, my girlfriend, tonight before we got on the show. And uh, she said, so who are you guys interviewing tonight? And I said, oh, Rocky. And she said, well, what is he doing? And I said, well, everybody knows him for business objects. And she looks at me and she goes, what are those? Rocky? For my girlfriend that's a good though it's a good question
3: yeah uh, and and given the target audience i don't know uh, that's a tough question. Are there these things that uh, contain all of your data and all of your uh, business logic, which of course means nothing to somebody who isn't a programmer well sure yeah i th-
2: the thing is though, even to some programmers it might not mean anything i've that's been true. enough places where i've seen basically procedural code being written with an object-oriented language and right. there's no attempt at all of any abstraction or encapsulation or anything like that. And so maybe like a, a good simple definition would be... Yeah, you language. say the
1: word business logic and their eyes glaze over.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: So business logic being the stuff that you write into your program that's different from the ifs, thens, and the do loops, right?
3: Well, it really is. You know, I mean, I've been actually thinking about that a lot lately that most of the lines of code that we write has nothing to do with our business problem. Yeah. Even something as, as uh typical as creating a property. You know, you've got your property line, your get, your end get, your set, your end set, and your end property. Yeah. Or if you're in semicolon land you replace all that stuff with, you know, squiggly brackets. Yeah. But it's the same number of lines of code, none of which provide you with any value whatsoever. Mm. right there, there's no business intelligence or it was all plumbing it was wasted time to type all that stuff in right and in between there is a the little bit of goo where you do your validation you know where you make sure that this value you know that needs to exist actually does or that this value that has a maximum uh, you know numeric value of a hundred actually meets those criteria mm. and so it's only those very few lines of code that you write in and amongst all the rest of this goo, that has any value to us at all. And the idea behind business objects is to consolidate all of that, the meaningful code that you write, you know, the things that do the validation, the calculation, data manipulation, and put all that in some sort of a wrapper so that everything that has to do with, Maybe a, a customer or a product is inside the customer object or the product object so that it's all self-contained.
2: Yeah. Okay. And and why is this difficult for so many developers? I mean, what's going on here that, uh, I mean, your book is very, your, well, your books, you're, basically your knowledge is really important to a lot of people. You're very well known for this stuff. So what's going on that makes it so tough for so many developers to really grok this stuff, to really get it?
3: Well, I think there's two things. Maybe more, but two big ones. The first is that, uh, most of us have been trained through college or, or tech schools, uh, to think and, and design things in a procedural manner. Mm-hmm. You know, there's very few, um, curriculum out there, until maybe recently, that taught object-oriented programming. And, you know, so if you start learning the COBOL, FORTRAN, Pascal mindset, It becomes really hard, I think, later to adapt that. I started my career um, on the DEC-VAX computer. No events, none of that stuff, right? Everything was very, very linear. And then switching into the Windows world, where everything is event-driven, was a huge change. Right. And I think it's easily comparable to say that moving from procedural training into an object mindset is, is comparably difficult. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, the other big thing I think that we've fought with for years is that all of our tools uh, really help us create procedural data-centric code, and they don't help us create object-oriented code. You you, you haven't been able to data bind to objects until recently, really. Mm -hmm.
1: Rocky, do you think that uh, just the whole idea of putting things in objects is, is uh, you know, sort of is like too much thinking for your average visual basic programmer that, you know, that's too sophisticated a thing that we don't think we can get our, you know, minds around it? Or do you actually see uh, widespread adoption of, you know, object-oriented technologies? I guess let's, that's the question I want to ask you. You know, there was a lot of VB programmers out there, VB6 programmers, and a lot of them used your book and as, a, as a guide. And but there's there's many many more Visual Basic programmers of the old stuff that never really got into objects. So even though Microsoft says you know there are six million VB programmers out there, I gotta think that a very small percentage of them actually did anything meaningful with with objects at all. And so now coming into VB .net, obviously you you have to think object oriented way in in an object oriented way, but as Rory said, he's met lots of people that are still writing things procedurally, and so have I and uh, you know what's I guess this is what you're talking about but uh, you see you see that a lot in your line of work as well
3: I do um, I see it a lot and, and I actually want to pick out one kind of statement you you made in there which is as you move to dot net you have to become all object-oriented. And for better or worse, that's not true. It's perfectly possible, uh, I mean, absolutely trivial to sit down in, in vb.net or C-sharp and write a vb3-style program. Sure. You just drag and drop some you know, data tables onto your form, right. wind them up to a grid.
1: And that's what we see. That's
3: write what your code behind I buttons. Too. You mean, know, yeah. There's nothing that forces you to do anything different. And um, yeah, I mean, I've encountered companies that have even switched to C-sharp, right? They, they were a VB shop, and they switched to C-sharp to get their developers to be better and more object-oriented. And, of course, they just write VB code with semicolons. Right. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a language problem. It, it's not right. a language problem, no. It's this idea of trying to, to convince people or, or train people to move from a very procedural, data-centric worldview into an object-oriented worldview.
1: I get the most leverage in talking about objects to non-object VB programmers using uh, custom controls as a model for an object because they're visual and you can see them and you can therefore understand them easier. Like Like a text box is a perfect teaching tool for an object, I think.
3: Yeah, I I think to some degree you've hit it on the head too in that the problem is that the tools, the visual tools, because that's why VB was always so popular, right? right is,
1: is, custom it's controls. all
3: very visual. And you, you get a lot of immediate feedback with everything you do. And as soon as you step into doing object-oriented programming, you're writing code that has no visual component to it. And so you don't get that. you know, The instant gratification thing is gone. Right. And... Yeah. They, with VB.NET, we got that addressed a little bit in that at least you can do some data binding to your objects, but it's still got a long way to go. And when we look forward now into .NET 2.0 um, or, or Visual Studio 2005 or whatever it's being called now, right? Um, all of a sudden now you, you actually can do visual data binding to your objects. And with this new class designer, you can even do a lot of your, um, uh, your, your coding, the creation of the properties, for instance, mm-hmm. um, through a graphical tool. So you don't, mm. a, a nice one for that matter. So you don't have to write it all by hand. And, and so I'm, I'm hoping that these new tools that Microsoft is coming out with are going to provide more of that instant gratification.
1: Are you talking about Whitehorse?
3: Uh, yeah. The, the class designer is part of Whitehorse
1: yeah so let's talk about that for a bit we've we've talked about it briefly on the last show. We answered a couple of questions about what it is, and I didn't think I did a very good job of explaining it so why don't you tell everybody what what it is
3: uh, Whitehorse is now part of I, I think it's part of visual studio team system as of tech ed um, but primarily it is two different designers um one is what's called the SOA designer, and the purpose of that designer is to help you figure out how your applications, so your web app or your Windows app or a Windows service or, or whatever, but it, but an action, so not at a DLL level, but at an application level, figure out how those applications are going to map onto the servers in your environment. Okay. And so the two pieces of that are, are one, hopefully you can convince your operations IT guys to create a diagram in Whitehorse of the um, operations center, describing the security model and and the different kinds of servers and how they're configured. And assuming that you convince them to create this diagram, then you have to convince them to give it to you.
1: Right. So, uh-huh. you were making the point uh, rocky that um, if you can convince your the people to give you this diagram
3: yeah I was yeah you know, so so assuming you can convince your i t guys to create this diagram and convince them to release the diagram to you as a developer, then you can you can take this other piece of the tool and create a diagram of all of your main application pieces, so basically you're maybe your web app that's running on the web server and a web service that's running on some other place and a Windows app, and you can attempt to drag them onto the diagram and see where they can run. So the idea is to help bridge the gap between the developer designer person and the IT infrastructure people.
1: Yeah. And that's the SOA designer?
3: That's what's being called the SOA designer. Okay. And then the other major tool is called the class designer. And the class designer um, is really a project level diagram. So within a project, not even at the solution level, uh, you can add this diagram to your project and it allows you to um, get a UML-like view of all of the classes that are inside your project.
1: So it's a sort of a rational thing. Rational Rose kind of Visio,
3: yeah, it Great. is. You know, I, 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 today I use Visio all the time, um, and this is similar, but it's better because it actually extends on UML to include concepts that um, are present in the .NET environment, things like uh, friend scope or internal right. in C sharp that you can't really express in UML. Yeah. All of a sudden, become available to you. Or the distinction between fields and properties, which again UML has no clue about these things. But it's a, a fundamental piece of .NET, and so the, this diagram looks like UML. Only it's better because it does everything .NET can do. Hmm. And what's really cool, um, and, and, and you, I mean, this sounds almost like I'm hyping it, but I'm not. I mean, this stuff is, is even working today. What's really cool is that. As you change the diagram, so you add properties or fields to the, to the diagram for a class, literally in real time it's adding the code. And then if you turn around and change the code, like for instance I declare some property as a string and I go, oh, oh no, that should have been an integer, and I go back in, into my code and change it to be an integer, the diagram is instantly updated as well.
1: So it's two-way.
3: It's two-way.
1: Uh, we have a question from the chat room. Any sneak peek comments about how the c sharp port went
3: the uh, the c sharp edition of the book and the and the port was perfectly smooth um, the C sharp edition of the framework will be essentially identical to the VB edition and uh, the the bigger problem actually was not porting the code but was porting the book itself because I had to go through and ferret out all of the um, you know, basically turns of phrase or or things that I described in a VB way and convert them, the, the, the English words, to a C-sharp approach.
1: Oh, hey, uh, Rory. Yeah? Before I forget, system.rocky.lotka.rocks. Okay. Yep. Okay. Never mind. Go ahead, Rocky. Just a little something I had to tell Rory there.
3: Okay. Um, and so, yeah, so I, yeah, I ported all the code. Um, there were some minor things, obviously, that that are different. For instance, C sharp uh, only allows uh, one indexed property on a class, and VB allows many, and so that was a problem in one one area. Um, and well, uh, that, that was probably the only major thing I ran into. Yeah. Uh, in terms of debugging, there's uh, you know constant dealing with uh, runtime errors due to case sensitivity. <laughs> That that would be my pet peeve with C sharp right there is, is yeah. uh, if it didn't if it wasn't case sensitive I might actually use it.
1: Got anything you want to say about that, Rory?
2: I actually like the case insensitivity because I can if if I'm just going to have a short lived local like um, some class or or you know some object space. Lowercase some object equals new some object, and I just want to use it for like the next three lines. I can do that without having to come up with something really creative. If it's just going to be a really short-lived object, then I actually find the case insensitivity to be really useful, and I also like it for um, parameters. I, I, it, it just gives me more options. In VB, people to get around it um, wind up having to do like. Uh, Underscores and they do the my something something object, you know, and my drives me crazy. <laughs> okay, my is one of those things that just drives me nuts. I I I've never really understood where it came from. So it came from the case, the demo
1: code, sample code.
3: Yeah, yeah I don't. You know, I,
2: people learn from the demos and the samples, and then they do it in their own code. Yeah, and, uh, you see I, it don't know. I
3: I so rarely run into the problem you're describing, and and I can say that as I was porting the the code for the book. Um, At least four or five times I ran into cases, And, and the problem that, so here's my real pet peeve with it, is that it creates runtime errors. It creates things that compile just fine, and you don't know that the fact that a parameter and a property are the same except for case, right? And so you're manipulating one or the other. You think you're manipulating the property, when in reality you're manipulating the parameter. You don't know that until you run your unit tests the compiler cannot help you.
1: So there and you go. It just comes down bad. to It just comes down to what you what you're doing with it, you know. And what you're used to also what because like
2: to. yeah, I'm I'm used to those sorts of strange literatures. like as soon as the Intellisense gives me the parameter when I wanted or gives me the uh, variable when I wanted the property or the other way around, I my brain just goes, "Whoa, hold on." and and realizes it instantly. But if you're coming from a VB world, I could definitely see how you wouldn't have that automatic, you know, machinery built in.
1: Well, we've been talking about your book now, and let's let's actually bring people back to your framework. You've written an application framework for business objects, CSLA. Yeah, that's right. So let's talk about that. Let's tell everybody what it is. Here's your here's your spot, man. Go for it.
3: All right. Um, CSLA stands for Component Based Scalable Logical Architecture. Um, the the acronym came about when I wrote the VB five. Uh, business objects book and the publisher said, well, we've got to have an acronym. And so it was decided by committee. So, you know, don't blame me.
1: Because the last one was the Inscalable.
3: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> inscalable. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but but there you have it anyway. And yeah, once that's you, fine. Once you pick the name, then you're stuck, right? Right. Um, but basically what the the goal behind this thing is to simplify a lot of the complexity of dealing with uh, objects. There's a set of things that you want your objects in general to be able to do, such as save themselves to the database or read themselves back. And uh, you might want your objects to be able to undo changes, right. uh, especially in a Windows application that's quite common. Um, also, objects almost always have some sort of validation rules, and so you want your object basically to keep track of whether or not it's happy. Does it have any broken rules at any point in time? And uh, a variety of other things such as similar, you know, is it new? Is it old? Is it deleted? Has it been changed? Um, and and uh, that type of thing. And implementing all of that code yourself in every class is a lot of work. And so the idea behind the framework was to Pull all of that code, or at least as much as possible, up into some framework. And then when you want to create a, like say a customer object, you just inherit from a base class and you automatically get all of this. Now, what people Hmm. have done since the book came out, you know, there's still a fair amount of code. Like I was saying earlier, that, you know, you still have to create a property. And when you create a property, you write maybe eight lines of of useless code to write two or three lines of business code. Yeah. And so what a lot of people have taken to doing is creating uh, code generators that generate a lot of the code. Right. Uh, And and so actually after the VB book, the VB.net book came out, um, I altered the framework uh, specifically to help make it easier for people to create code generators.
1: And there's a lot of people using this framework. What are some of your of your customers that are using it?
3: Um, well, you know, I get people literally from all over the world that that come up and or send me emails, or um, some of the government in Virginia is using it for. Um, I, I think if you get pulled over for a uh, DUI, you will probably get checked up on using software <laughs> based on this.
1: Uh, wow, that's uh, cool.
3: Um, some of the there's some uh, pro sports. Is that, that going to get
1: you out of a ticket? You know, if you tell the police officer that.
3: Well, you know and Drop I asked name. them I asked them about that. I said, Hey, can can I get out free if I'm running through Virginia? And they said that uh, unfortunately there are, are that software that, that has to do with that stuff goes through external audits.
4: Uh huh.
3: You talk you talk about code reviews. This really? is not just developers. This is you know external auditors making sure there's no back doors. Wow. So I was kinda of bummed. Oh well.
1: Well, uh we have a question from Gordon Markick. Mark Kiss, Marsik, Mark, I'm sorry, Gordon, I don't know. He's a dentist in Toronto, Canada. And uh, he says, all you guys that have lots of experience with OOP could develop stage tutorials that will teach the students, by example, to develop small programs with the use of objects. Hey, that sounds like the VBNet Masterclass, as a matter of fact. I (laughs) would actually love to participate in such tutorials since I'm in the process of learning VBNet. Uh, Keep rocking, Gordon. So... It's a little suggestion from uh, from Canada. We also have another uh, a statement, uh, a question here from Brian Kuhn, an avid listener in at the Kennewick School District in Kennewick, Washington. Rocky went to your custom authentication session at TechEd and really enjoyed it. I thought you did a good job of explaining authentication and authorization on the client versus on the web server. There you go.
3: Well, I appreciate that. There's some props I... for you. I had a lot of fun giving that session, too, so I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it.
1: Got another question. This one from Joshua Hayworth in Stanwood, Washington. Any idea why Microsoft chose to go away from the UML standard? Are they just snubbing IBM's per- purchase of Rational?
3: <laughs> I, well, I don't you think know. they just
1: do anything like just a snub. That's not a good enough reason.
3: <laughs> oh, you don't think so?
1: No, I don't think so.
3: I, I don't, I don't There's either. There's got to be
1: some strategic reason.
3: You know, for, for years now, I have been struggling with UML and the fact that it doesn't it doesn't do everything .NET does. Yeah. Heck, for that matter, it doesn't do everything Java does either.
1: It doesn't represent all that .NET does, in other
3: words. No, that's yeah. right. You can't represent events. You can't represent um, friend or internal scope. Uh, um, you can't represent the difference between fields and properties. You know, these, these are fairly obvious things. And so um, UML... In in short, hasn't moved or adapted fast enough to keep up with the reality of software development in the .NET and Java environments. And mm. Microsoft basically said, "Hey, we we've got to provide a graphical tool." It's ultra to mal-
1: cons- ultra maligned language, right there.
3: Yeah, you know, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> and you know, so they, they basically like one, right? stuck as close as they could to UML, yeah, um, but extended it to do the things that, that we. You know, the, all of us I think really want it to do.
2: So, what are what are they smoking? These, these UML people. I mean, why don't they have support? I mean, properties aren't like a terribly alien, confusing, foreign idea. It wouldn't be so difficult to add support for these things. I mean, why hasn't this stuff moved along? I'm I'm kind of curious about this now. Like, what's the history here? What what was UML like? Really intended for? It did was there a language or framework in mind, or h- how did it wind up being like this?
3: Oh, so now you've... I can't even answer this question.
2: <laughs> well, it was nine questions, first of all. <laughs> what, what's that? Yeah, pick a question first. You know? Nine questions oh. sort of strung together with some random stammering. <laughs> let's, let's just pick one. Was it originally intended for a specific language or platform?
3: No, it was not. It was. So it was...
2: They just went for, like, I mean, they wanted to support, like, all the features of assembly language, or, I mean, like, what is it, you know? They will
1: want to use variables. It was probably just the first thing that, you know, somebody had attached a WYSIWYG editor to and said, let's use this. (laughs)
2: Well, the the scary thing is you might be right, you know? I'm
3: serious. No, that's good enough. (laughs) Seriously, Uh the the, the real story is even better and, and... you, you know, the, the, the current uh, real-world American political landscape, right? Very divisive. Well, this ought to be good. <laughs> Republican versus Democrat and back and forth and whatever else, right?
1: Okay. The,
3: the, the history of UML is more divisive oh, God. yet than the current political landscape in the U.S. Basically, there were multiple um, widely recognized experts. I right? have Big spoken name to people. these
1: experts. I have seen the UML. I and have these spoken people, to them.
3: Each had their own diagramming technique, and they were championing their their various diagramming techniques to diagram objects.
2: Did one of them kill all the other ones?
3: Well, <laughs> I, you know, honestly, I don't know how they pulled this off, but they managed to come together in a room and 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 come up with a. I suppose you'd call it a compromise, and that would be UML.
1: We have deliberated for exactly four
2: hours. <laughs> deliberated? <laughs> That's cool. So then it was one of these things where uh, in order to satisfy everybody's egos, they came out with something that nobody could really use.
3: Sounds yeah, I didn't way. say that.
1: Hmm. You know, I'm glad because I always thought UML sucked, and I never wanted to say it because I thought, you know, the object oriented people would come down on me, but
2: you know.
3: they're like, yeah, they will.
1: I always thought it sucked. I never yeah. got into it.
2: I had issues with it too. I was never really happy with it myself either, so I can kind of see that. And now Microsoft's probably gonna take Flack for avoiding UML.
3: Oh, I'm sure they will.
2: For, so for doing what's their the own
1: alternative? Stuff. What's the what what's better and what's coming, you know, what's its replacement?
3: Well, I don't know. It took them years to come out with, what is it, UML 2.0 that they're at? Years to come out with that. So if we you know wait another several years, maybe they'll come out with a version of UML that can express everything we do in .NET or Java.
1: Well, is anybody doing anything alternative?
3: Uh, yeah, Microsoft came up with this class. <laughs> well, yeah, I know. It's a standard, though. Uh, not that I'm aware of. Huh.
1: So Microsoft doesn't have a standard in back of the Whitehorse designers?
3: No, not really. Huh. They, they've stuck quite close to UML, right? So it feels familiar to anybody who's done UML. But then it goes beyond that.
2: Hmm. It's basically like UML for with support for classes and methods and variables.
1: Hey, you know, Kathleen Dollard says UML is a great napkin. <laughs> it just purports to be more. <laughs> On the napkin under your beer, you really
2: don't care what's a field or a property, she says.
1: <laughs> All right, yeah, Kathleen. But, you're,
2: you're, but you, you don't try to generate code from your napkin.
1: No, we got to – She's talking? in mid-sentence. Napkin. She's in mid-thought here in the chat room. I'm going to have to wait till she types the rest of it to get this complete thought out here. A bunch of people are laughing. Somebody I, I don't asked, point. you know, why does UML suck, and she's explaining it.
3: I, I got to point out, though, that I designed my entire framework on a napkin.
1: Okay. Uh, okay. Oh, no, that's the end of the thought, she says. On the napkin, under no, your beauty you I be don't care what's a field or a property.
2: It's a napkin. It, it sounds like it's just a good place to kind of brainstorm.
1: Right. And CodeWrite says, probably really belongs on your toilet paper. So there you go. We knew we would bring it down to the toilet sometime. <laughs> <right? sighs> you know, go to the chat room while we're on here, folks. It's really, really more entertaining than what we're talking about. If you really <laughs> want to have fun, you go to the chat room. And people like Kathleen Dollard and Don XML are there hanging out and listening and, and talking. So, Well, anyway, uh, speaking of Kathleen Dollard, there, uh, you were talking about code generation and that people are, are doing code generators for CSLA.net. Is that is a good thing in your opinion?
3: I, yes, I've come, to, I've come to the conclusion that it's a good thing. I, yeah. I was very much anti-code generation for, well, years.
1: Now, why did you think it was inherently evil?
3: Well, usually code generation was coming out of a tool like Visio or something, you know, Rational Rose, whatever. And it was almost impossible to get these things to conform to your internal coding standards uh-huh. or, to, or to even generate the kind of code that, that you would choose to write. I mean, that's the big complaint, too, with all of Microsoft's wizards, which are really just code generators, if you True. think about it, is that. They, they don't write the code that you would write, and it right. pisses you off, and so then we don't like them, right?
1: Well, what you need is uh, the sort of the systems that Kathleen was talking about, though, where you actually write the code to write the code, and you start with templates.
3: Yeah, exactly. And so Kathleen you know, wrote a book on this topic, which is cool, and was kind enough to actually use my framework um, as an example inside the book. So she's got awesome. a code generator for CSLA. Well, that's cool. And then simultaneously with her writing the book, um, there's this, um, I suppose it's freeware or, or shareware uh, licensed deal called Codesmith that's out on the internet, which is kind of like an ASP for code generators. So you create, uh, you know, instead of tags with code like ASP, you create code with code. Um, and write Codesmith templates. And so at least three or four groups of people have created Codesmith templates for CSLA as well. Hmm. And, you know, it's great stuff because it does, it generates most of the code for you, if, if well done. And then you just write the custom business logic parts that can't be generated easily.
1: Yeah. On that note, we're going to uh, take a pause for the cause and pay the bills. And uh, Rocky, stick around and guys and every, all the listeners there. We're going to play some tunes and, and hang out and relax a bit. So uh, stick around.
4: And they air-
1: That's Rory Blythe right there. Original music here on .NET Rocks. Definitely want to hear some more of that. some more original music this is me though anyway so I want to talk to you guys about our regular sponsor Data Dynamics Uh, if you're looking for a simple fast powerful reporting solution that uh, fits right into your projects uh, reports get compiled into your assemblies ASP.net Windows Forms there's nothing better out there than ActiveReports.net check them out at datadynamics.com it's a uh it's a rewrite of their famous active reports for com for activex it's really good because it doesn't require a, a lot of expensive licenses or an extra server or anything like that You just make reports, you compile them in, you you use a designer, same kind of designer used to in other reporting platforms with all the great features that you need, grouping for example, and subtotals and headers and footers. And uh, you just make your reports, you compile them in, you show them. And uh, in ASP.NET you get PDF output, you get regular HTML output, it's just a lot of options. Great stuff. Check them out, www.datadynamics.com. up for our summer classes here at franklin's.net vb.net masterclass and the asp.net masterclass and they both are essentially the same thing except that the asp.net masterclass is completely focused on asp.net and it really is geared more towards the asp developer you know not necessarily the the component developer or the windows forms developer but the asp developer Uh, but you're going to learn the same stuff either way it's just a different teaching style and one, one focuses on Windows Forms and Components and the other on ASP.NET. Well anyway um, this is a great class. We've had a lot of incredible successes from our customers who have gone on to uh, develop very successful uh, applications for their companies. We have a huge laundry list of big companies and small companies alike that we've uh, trained and uh, you know it's a fun class. It's just a fun class. You come You hang out. I I write all the code on the fly. You know, I'm not reading out of a book. Uh, It's all from experience. It's all based on patterns, tried and true practices. And, uh, you know, we go out to lunch. We walk down the street. We go to some great restaurants that you've never, ever been to before. And, uh, you know, we come back and we, we do a project every day. And I'm right there helping you out and cheering you on. It's just a great environment and a great time so check it out www.franklins.net convince your boss to send you to the class we've got classes going on all the way through August right now we're going to be putting up our fall schedule very soon so there you go let's get back to our show in a few minutes here for some more music Check out the nice Beatles revolver ending at the end of this song.
4: When will we turn out the light? Will you come dance with me if I say I love you? Will you come dance with me if I say I love you? Won't you tell me the truth if I lie next to you?
1: It's a fun one. This next song is called Dream Factory.
4: Gone away the fireflies That I saw from my brother's eyes Gone away the summers of my dreams Racing cans down Irving Street Safe and warm in the evening heat Someone always looking out for me Trade you a steely for that candy bar Sleep in the back of my daddy's car I know he'll tuck me in Sixteen, I drove that car Fly away so fast, so far Try to find someone else Who thinks like me Who do I turn to? Who can I trust? The house next door has an impenet Such a big neighborhood And yet so Thank What the hell do you know What have you learned from your life down below Love and happiness won't pay for things you need Like a dream factory Like a factory. When I was a child I knew more than I know
1: now So true. So true. Well, uh, we're going to uh, start this hour off with a segment we haven't done in a few weeks. It's the Linux vulnerability of the week.
4: Hello, Mr.
1: Bull. Let's you and me fight. (laughs) Now, we don't do this because we're mean or we're Microsoft bigots or anything like that. The reason we do this, we highlight a, a vulnerability that has happened this week to some program in Linux uh, just to give equal time and to squash any myths that uh, Windows has bugs and Linux does not have bugs. And in fact, uh, the kind of bugs that Linux has are typically buffer overrun type of bugs, which you know are, are bugs that any kind of managed code such as Java or .NET will be much, much, much less susceptible to. So you see these over and over again. So every week I go up to uh, linuxsecurity.com slash advisories, excuse me, where they post uh, the advisories of, uh, you know, recently patched or recently discovered bugs. And this one is uh, in Mailman in Mandrake Linux. Uh, the advisory is, uh, mailman versions greater than or equal to 2.1 have an issue where third parties can retrieve member passwords from the server. Ouch. The updated packages have a patch backported from 2.1.5 to correct the issue. Yahoo! So how would you like to have your uh, email passwords snagged? And there you go. It's a quick one, but it's our Linux vulnerability of the week. Hello, Mr. Bull. Let's you and me
4: fight.
1: <laughs> so, Rocky. Yes. Yeah so let 's talk about s o a and uh, <laughs> I hear the crickets already, and you know people are logging off. oh no let 's talk about it though service oriented architecture is a buzzword that we 've talked about a bit, and we've pretty much come to the conclusion that it doesn 't really mean anything that it just means that uh, uh, means uh, that you're writing programs in a way in, in, a, in a certain way using services whether they be web services, whether they be sort of Windows services, or even DLLs or other programs, but in ways that uh, are self-describing services that, you know, are less concerned with the, oh, gee, what am I trying to say, man? Why don't you just help me out here? Help me out. What is SOA?
3: It's COBOL on the network.
1: Hey, there you go. That's what I'm looking for. The nice, shiny definition, COBOL on the network.
3: It is, right? SOA is all about procedural programming. It's about being able to call procedures that are running on some other computer on the network. And you call them by packaging up all of your your parameter data and send it over there in a message. And the procedure does its work and packages up its result and sends it back.
1: And the thing I'm getting at that I was stumbling over is trying to find a way to, to say that you know there's there's some there's some aspect of being self describing or self discovering about SOA that's you, you know not tied to any one platform it sounds a lot like web services but it's not just about web services it's sort of like the idea behind web services but at a much broader view right
3: yeah maybe i i, I think in order i don't think SOA requires that
1: sure oh, I well, okay okay
3: don't think it's going to be successful so if there isn't the, a discovery. But.
1: So where is the definition? I mean, who owns the definition? What is it?
3: Well, that's really the problem, isn't it? There is no—in <laughs> the, the, the be, in my mind, the best description of SOA that I ever heard was Pat Helland did this um, deal where he described the experience of walking into a diner. You know, the old-fashioned kind of diner with the waitress and the candy stripe little dress and an apron right
1: yeah like rosies right it's like right.
3: rosies yep and you sit down and and the waitress comes over with her little pad of paper and takes your order which is a message and delivers that message back to the uh to the kitchen and they do their you know their thing and of course to to actually make your food they might have to look up recipes which is like database lookups and basically he walks through this whole process and there's not a computer within probably 50 miles of Rosie's diner. Right. Right. And the, the point being that SOA has nothing to do with computers.
1: What happens if the waitress pinches your nipples?
3: You know, it depends on if you like that or <laughs> not. It could be an additional service.
1: Well, there's a story there. I think we talked about that on another show, didn't we?
2: I thought we did. I, th- I thought we talked about it, maybe like the third or fourth show that I was in New London. Right. We actually like went guys, to a diner, and she actually did try to pinch some nipple. Yeah. So, <laughs> and it was, it was called Rosie's. So, yeah.
3: There we go. You, you, you guys live in an interesting part of the country.
2: Well, I do. I did.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, when I think about SOA, I, I usually think about. I mean, Harry was talking about how it's all about the message, right? And I kind of, I kind of think about it. It's also. Maybe if you had a questionnaire and you want it to be filled out and you suck in an envelope, mailed it off to somebody, they filled out their little answers in the questionnaire, put it back in another envelope and mailed it back to you. Right? But the, there's the, yeah. The transport doesn't even really matter. I think that's another thing that
1: But the, you know what that, does matter though is the data types. And this is where this is where i I get screwed up. Is that, you know, in trying it seems like it should be a really, really easy thing to do to make it to make this, you know. Public function across the web seems like a really easy thing to do, and it seems like a really e- easy thing to standardize. And that, and and it's really fine if you're using strings and ints, right?
3: But but, but no, it, it's actually not. And the reason is because we're the real problem is um, semantic, not syntactic. I used to work for uh, as a consultant for an agricultural co-op, and. We were writing a system to manage inventory and some other stuff like that. But they had spent over five years with their vendors and and other competitors and partners attempting to define the word product. Hmm. (laughs) And nobody could Hmm. agree on what a product was. And so even if they decided to go with strings versus integers, it didn't really matter because what I called a product, you called a part. It, you know, it, it right. falls apart under the semantic weight.
2: Well, the, the deal with it is that, I mean, if I call your service and you send a message back to me, I mean, should, should I be dealing with that message, with the values in that message based on what the values really are? I mean, I'm going to be able to look at it and say, is that numeric data or is that string data or is this something more complex, right?
3: Well, you can tell the data type, but if I send you a string, and, it's, and I call it a product ID, right. in your system, that might be um, a part, a sub-product.
2: Exactly, that's what I'm saying. It doesn't really matter what the type is. I'm going to treat it a certain way once I get it back. And it seems to me that we, I mean one of the ideas behind SOA is, is this sort of disconnected uh, kind of architecture. And when you get into that, it seems to me that you really couldn't even you couldn't deal with type.
1: That's what I'm saying, yeah.
3: Well, th- this is why I don't think you can couple the concept of description too tightly into SOA. Okay. Because we have yet to figure out a way to describe semantic meaning. And the only way this is ultimately going to work in a worldwide sense is if, as the publisher of a service, I can define that, that field 1 is a string and 2 and 3 are dates and field 4 is an integer, Right. That's we can do that today, mm-hmm. but I also need to convey to you what I believe the semantic meaning is, so that you can map it to whatever the heck you want to do, mm-hmm. right? But you need to know that when that field one to me is is a product number, right. however it is that I think of a product, and it becomes the the burden then goes on you as the consumer of the service to translate that semantic meaning and say, well, yeah, what he. <laughs> Rocky's an idiot. What he calls a product is really a part, right? So I'm going to take his string value that he calls a product ID, and I'm going to treat it like it's a part ID in my system. And we have no way; there is no language to describe semantic meaning like that.
1: But that's okay. It I is. mean, it, so how do you well, get, how it's do it's you do it? it's a failure
3: that? of SOA, though. If we can't solve this problem, it's yeah, you know, we're not going to get very far.
2: The thing is, though, is it it really necessarily a problem? Because if if your concepts are so different, then your systems are so different. And you're really just after a piece of information. And what you do with it and what it means on your end isn't really relevant completely. I mean, it's not completely relevant to what it is on the other end. You just need to make sure that you aren't doing anything stupid with it. I mean, I know that I'm speaking in a lot of vague, weird abstractions here, but I, I guess the feeling I'm getting is that it doesn't matter as much. And it almost comes down to... I think that if something were just simply well-documented, right, it's one of those TFM situations, you know. Like when I'm dealing with Amazon Web Services, um, their concepts of this and that are maybe a little bit different than my concepts. But Mm -hmm. when it gets to mind, I can do whatever I want with the data that's getting pushed down.
3: Well, I hate to disagree, but I I really must because (laughs) the, you know, to go back to that agricultural co-op scenario, the reason that they spent five years trying to sort this stuff out was because they wanted to exchange data with each other. That was mm-hmm. that was the whole reason they put all that effort into the thing, right? Was we ultimately were supposed to be able to import data from some of the chemical companies that make fertilizers. And we couldn't do that, right? Because I mean nobody could agree on what product meant.
1: I had a horrible thought. What are we going towards drivers? Like <laughs> you have your your driver that talks between between your application and the XML that goes through the web service, and you have another driver at the other side to you know to to deal with semantics or to deal with you know the differences between our systems. I think are we, are we headed there?
3: Driver or adapter
1: or adapter or some yeah. other layer?
3: Because I think you know since we don't have a language to describe it in a way that a computer can understand. What it really means is that you're going to have to sit down with each business partner and have a a human to human discussion about what they think all the data means, what you think it means, and yeah, you're going to have to come up with some sort of um, adapter or driver that converts the semantic meaning between the two. We're not talking about XSL here. We're talking about about more complicated stuff. Yeah,
1: a layer. Uh, Have you seen anybody doing that?
3: Not yet. People that need to do that haven't gone to SOA because it's. I mean, this is not new. That's the other thing, right? Right, right sure. It's mean, an old problem. I, we we fought this with with freaking COBOL files.
1: At least you know, they get all
3: excited, but well, yeah.
1: At least with the web, we have port eighty so in XML. So that that problem of geographical and architectural, you know, firewall issues is gone, but or not gone, but almost gone, and. So now the, that's the last frontier. Is you know, XML gets you only so far, but in the end, it's going to have to turn into a type.
2: Wait, wait a minute, though. Now, if if my understanding of SOA is correct, and I'll admit it's probably not, um, but but if it is, then maybe this the the these guys with the agricultural problem, maybe SOA just isn't even the right application for them. Because if you have to have this, you know, disconnected nature and distributed nature to your system, where people aren't necessarily agreeing on anything. Um, Maybe they need something that's a little more tightly defined and that binds them a little bit better.
1: Which leads me to the uh, the R word. What's What are your takes on remoting these days?
3: You know, I still use remoting. And I still recommend that people do use it. Yeah. And, you know, certainly uh, Indigo is coming, right? Right. And, and Indigo is coming sometime after Visual Studio 2005. Right. So, yeah, what are we talking you know, one, two, three years, we'll have Indigo. And at that point, Indigo is going to do everything remoting does plus everything that web services can do. Right. But, yeah, I don't know about you, Supposedly but I have better. work to do between yeah, now sure. and then. Sure. <laughs> sure. And, and today, the viable technology for uh, most client-server scenarios, at least, is remoting. Hmm. So, yeah, it's still... I've actually um, heard tell of people recommending against remoting to the point that they say, you know what you should do is just write your own socket layer.
1: Yeah, I get that. (laughs) I get that (laughs) once in a while, too.
3: Like, What are you, people insane? You know, I I got better things to do than write socket layer plumbing, right? That went out of vogue 20 years ago. Right.
1: Maybe 10, anyway. Although, and I have to say this, there are some times when you can't use either remoting or web services, and sockets is the only way, talking to devices that don't support that, for example. That's true. Okay, but in a sane scenario, right? Yeah. In a sane scenario, <laughs> in, a, I mean, in a more traditional in, scenario, in a business scenario, yeah, sure. Yeah, so so let, let's talk remoting for a minute. Uh, basically, what I tell people is the easiest thing to do is to use the binary formatter with an HTML channel. Yep. Just because it's so freaking easy. And, Absolutely. Uh, but it doesn't really gain you much especially if well especially if you're using data sets and that's another bad word in your vocabulary which we'll talk about later but it uh it doesn't gain you a lot but if you're writing a program if you're writing a program to do your own uh sockets channel hosting you're not getting the benefit of a multi-threaded server
3: well, that's not necessarily true. It just you could
1: write. You just have to write your own. Yeah,
3: exactly. Yeah,
1: but if you're just sitting there waiting on a single thread for a ne- for another request, and then processing that request, you have a single thread handling all those requests. Yep. And uh, so, so it sort of makes the whole remoting as a means of performance gain kind of a kind of moot.
3: I, I don't follow. I mean, remoting is intrinsically multi-threaded, so it's not waiting.
1: Right, but if you're if you're if you're writing an application, a hosting application, and it's a let's let's even say it's a Windows application and you're accepting, you know, connections to an object through Through remoting? Through remoting. You're hosting an object. Yep. Aren't those requests being handled on a single thread?
3: No, they are multi threaded.
1: Even if you're just using the sockets channel.
3: The T C P channel? The T C P channel far as I know, they're all multi-threaded, even if you're doing a, your own Windows host. Because all those inbound requests end up running on threads from the .NET thread pool. It's actually one of the biggest, um, when you're creating like a peer-to-peer type application, it's one of the biggest ways that you can get in trouble is hosting so, that in a Windows app so it and then like allowing I... that background thread to talk to the UI directly. All
1: right. Well, it sounds like I got some bad information, so I'm going to have to research this a bit. Hmm. Okay. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Sorry. Check's in the mail.
1: No, it's good. It's good to hear. Uh, it's g- good to know. Generally
3: speaking, though, I do use the HTTP channel yeah. with the binary formatter. Me
1: too. It's just easier.
3: You know, even if I'm doing my own host, I'll do that because it makes debugging so much easier because you can test with the browser.
1: Yeah, yeah. So in ADO.net 2.0, there are these smart data table objects. And I know you've done some work with these things. So what are they, and how do they work?
3: Well, as you mentioned earlier, I'm not a huge fan of data sets and data tables to start with. Right. Primarily because I am kind of an advocate for being object-oriented. and, and well, there
1: are books to sell and mouths to feed, right? Well, well yeah,
3: exactly. <laughs> but, uh, you know, my biggest complaint has always been that the data table, there's, there's no way to embed your business logic into the data table. You can attach logic, you know, using events or other techniques, but it's relatively easy for... A UI developer to bypass your logic if they want to, yeah. And that, that's always been my biggest complaint
1: because they're so open.
3: Yeah, and that's where objects really shine, right? Right. You're because um, you know they totally link. You can't get to the data without going through the business logic. Yeah. Now these new this new concept basically. Is taking what we think of today as the uh, strongly typed data table or data set, but they're narrowing it to the table level, and so it's a strongly typed data table, but it's also got this new partial class concept, so you can attach your own code directly to the table, and by the time it's compiled, and even if you have
1: to regen it, it doesn't matter because you're you're in two separate files.
3: Yep. Your, yeah. your, your code is in one file. The gen code is in another file. But the compiler combines them as it compiles. So it's better and simpler than inheritance. Right. And the end result is that the UI developer cannot, in fact, bypass your business logic. Yeah. So it, it has the potential, at least for simpler applications, to allow the, the, the VB3-style drag-and-drop type um, development experience, right, with familiar data tables, drag them onto the form, do the binding, you know, all that great rad stuff, but the data table itself has all your validation rules and and calculations in it.
1: Let me ask you this. You're obviously uh, trading off sort of the ease of development of using data sets and data tables. Um, based on the, the, well, at least one of your arguments that you just made, and I'm just recapping here, is that you want to protect your code from the developers just going right to the data table and using its mechanisms directly instead of going through your interfaces. So is this a problem? I mean, when somebody checks in code that they're doing it the wrong way, doesn't your manager say, no, you can't do that that way? I mean, don't we have meetings and code reviews where those kinds of things are... I mean, can we can we trust our developers to not do that? No, is this a problem?
2: Can't. No. <laughs> right. So this I, is I a you,
1: you can't just, you know, if I was a manager and I saw somebody had checked in code that that didn't go through our interfaces, you know, no, that's not that's not acceptable. That's that that's not enough.
3: Yeah, that, that stuff doesn't get checked, really. I mean, not not on a regular reliable basis. no.
1: Yeah, nothing's really
2: done quite so by well, the book.
1: Well, is that because they're not doing their job? Uh, because the managers aren't doing their job, or the team isn't working efficiently? Isn't that another problem? Um,
2: or because the manager was friends with somebody who was up in marketing, who knew the VP of sales, who knew the CEO, who hired this guy because somebody wanted him to.
1: I'm just curious. <laughs> you know, I guess I've I've never worked on a software team where the where the manager, you know, the process owner, didn't trust the developers not to do things this way or that way. There was always just we're going to do it this way, okay, and we do it that way. I mean, is this is it, you've seen this is a big problem, Rocky?
3: Well, it's a yeah, it's, it's a constant problem in that it's so easy to put an if statement behind a button click or behind a change event on a text box. Yeah, and any time that you do that, you just put business logic in the UI. But it's so easy to do that everybody does it. In, okay. I mean, including me, right? Here, so I'm the guy that's all object-happy. So there's obviously got to be know. some
1: policeman somewhere saying, no, you can't do that. So why wouldn't, why wouldn't this go further to apply to uh, people using your data tables directly? I just don't think
3: well, that's the, the, the idea here is that
1: enough of a problem.
3: The idea here is that you can embed all the the validation logic into the data table so that it's inescapable.
1: I get it, yeah.
3: Right. And and if you replicate it in the UI too, well, that's your problem. Sure. Right. It's not good, but.
1: I, I, yeah, I don't mean, I'm not saying I think the problem is that, you know, that it happens. Obviously it happens. It's not good. I don't want it to happen just like you don't want it to. I don't want people writing code and behind buttons. You know, that's the thing. But I, if I was managing a team of developers, I would say, don't do that. And, you know, if, if I see code that gets checked in like that, we're, well. You know, you're going to have to rewrite it. You're going to have to use the interfaces of this object, and and I'm going to trust you not to call the select method on the data table directly, but to use our interfaces. And if we don't have an interface, then we need to have a meeting and we need to rearchitect or whatever it is. You know, doesn't yep. that seem? Doesn't it seem like a an you're throwing oh. out the baby with the bathwater here by discounting?
3: Well, but see, I don't think so. I think we're no. actually, if you've had success with that, then what, what this is giving you is just another tool.
1: Oh, sure. And I'm not saying this isn't a good solution. But I'm just saying in general your arguments against data sets and data tables because, you know, well, they could just use the, the tool directly rather than using yes. our interfaces. And I'm just questioning whether you think that is really a, that big of a problem.
3: Right. I think it gets to uh, be Friday and my work is due, and if I don't get done, then I'm gonna have to come in on Saturday and miss my kid's baseball game. Yeah, you know, I'm gonna do whatever it takes to get the code working, and if I have to bypass your interface because it doesn't do what what I need it to do, and I can't wait for you know somebody else to fix it for me because I'll miss (laughs) I'll miss my kid's game. Right, I'm gonna do what it takes and there's a there's more of that in the world i think than people
1: So you're saying you'd rather have the developer miss their kid's baseball game?
3: <laughs> yeah, i guess so. <laughs> Is that what i said? That's what you said.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, okay. So so the anyway, the new stuff that's coming up here, these uh smart data table objects to recap, partial classes mean that when you create a type data set now, you're regenerating the whole thing. And if you go in there and you add some code to it, you know, to put your business logic in there and your own interfaces, uh, you're going to have to regen all that code every time. With partial classes, you could separate out your code from the code-generated code in your rocking. And I think that's great. Yep. Yeah.
3: I do, too. I think it's a big step forward for the kind of the data-centric application developer.
1: Yeah. And so that really has an effect on your overall view of using business objects?
3: Eh, no.
1: Well, it, does, <laughs> it, does, it doesn't have any effect, or it does?
3: Not, not a big effect, because I still think yeah. that an object-oriented model is a better model than a data-centric one. Okay. And, and really what this smart data table concept is doing is making it easier to extend the relational model into your application. You know, for, yeah. and for smaller, simpler apps, that's awesome, right? right? Right. But if you're creating some, you know, a, a business app that you want to la- have last for years, you're, you know, it's much more. Uh, it's a much better investment to spend the time to build a, a decent object model instead. Yeah. The one thing that that I have been looking at and haven't decided whether I like it or not is that attached to every smart data table is a smart data adapter. Mm. So so it's actually a two-part deal. Mm. The data table has this partial class, and then there's a strongly typed adapter that gets generated, and it also can have a partial class.
1: And that's for loading and resolving data to and from databases?
3: Yeah, exactly.
1: So you're sort of putting the code and the data in the same place and passing it around through the tiers?
3: Well, the adapter is a separate class, Yeah. Right? So there is separation there between the table. It's just like today, basically, right? Yeah. Um, But this new adapter is strongly typed, whereas today's adapters are kind of loosey-goosey.
1: But still, I guess you're not happy about having that code hanging out with the data uh in the middle tier.
3: Well, it does kind of – today, at least, the way that this is generated is that these two classes are physically generated in the same file. Mm-hmm. So you can't put the adapter on a middle tier and have the data table on the client. Hmm. And that's really what you'd want, right? Right, sure. Um, So today, at least, you can't do that. And I've been kind of lobbying uh, the powers that be at Microsoft, trying to convince them they should fix that. But, you know, we're getting close to the time of betas, and features don't change much. And just
1: just to um, clarify, partial classes... Even though you have two separate source files, they do get compiled together into a single assembly. So it's not like you could just take split one class across two different DLLs.
3: That's right. That's
1: exactly right. Which would solve the problem. Yeah. Yeah. How are you doing out there, Rory?
2: I am doing all right.
1: Still hanging in? Yeah. Cool. All right. That's a great song, by the way.
2: Well, you, you know how I feel though about data sets, So I thought maybe it's I true. should just kind of hang back a little bit. It's true. Yeah, Rory's um uh, not
1: hasn't uh drank the data set Kool-Aid either. Yeah, I'm not so. I'm not happy
2: with data sets, so.
1: So but it sounds like, you know, the data set idea is getting a little more sophisticated in in
2: .net 2.0. Which actually will probably make me like it less. <laughs> <laughs> I I I like things to remain very bare bones. Just straightforward and simple, and the more you put on top of it, and the more it does for me. Almost the more I distrust it. And he gives know?
1: me shit for using String Builder to build an RSS.
2: <laughs> you know, make up your System. freaking System. mind, man. System XML has a lot of nice tools in it for writing XML. You know, that's just how I feel about it. Okay. But String Builder's are nice too. All right,
1: <laughs> inconsistent. <laughs> Excuse me. Sorry. Well, I mean, yeah, I
2: have double standards right. and. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no question about that. <laughs> so I'm a hypocrite. <laughs> I don't have a problem but with you're it. you're a lovable
1: though. hypocrite, so we 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 cut you slack. Yeah. That's all right. I'm a hypocrite too, I'm sure, in some ways. Uh, so Rocky, books, this uh, C-sharp version of your business object book and your framework, uh, is it all out? Is it in the stores? Can we get it now?
3: Um, unfortunately, it won't be out until the end of June.
1: Oh, How many pages?
3: uh, Yeah, I don't think I have a final count, but it's longer than the VV one.
1: Oh, God. How do you do that? How do you write a tome like that and still
3: have it? it, The surprising thing here is that the reason it's longer is partially because I fixed some um, errata from the VV edition, and yeah, reworded a few things, but most of the the growth in the book is because C sharp actually is longer than VB for most things. All right, <laughs> which <laughs> That's was funny. a total shock to me because <laughs> C sharp is supposed to be the short, quick, right. cryptic language, right?
1: Well, they always say here's a good one. I like you know I don't like wordy languages like VB .NET. I prefer C sharp. It's more concise. And then you dim up a a new System .dot .serialization .dot you know, formatters, whatever it is, that binary. You know, it's like seven or eight namespaces long. That's okay. You know, but I don't want to have to type is nothing. That's too much typing.
3: Yep. <laughs> I had somebody point out that I, I could have shortened the C sharp code down to one line if I wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a less than constructive comment. Right,
1: so we'll stop here. We won't. Uh, we won't go on this. We won't take the bait. We love C sharp,
2: right? Well, somebody here does.
1: And it's programmers. Uh, so, in the chat room, somebody's asking if you are going to produce an ebook version.
3: Uh, that would be up to A Press and okay. uh, the publisher. And I, I'm not sure that they're doing ebooks.
1: Okay. All right. Good enough. And uh, we also had uh, another question here. Will visual designers eventually replace most coding tasks we do now, or will it always be complementary to writing actual code? Is the day coming when we will just connect images on a design form? All right, so uh, turn on your ESP helmet there.
3: Oh. So I actually can answer that with a story. Back in 1987, I was working at the Minneapolis-St. Paul Airport and doing some programming for statistics and statistical analysis. And their director of IT at the time told me that I was wasting my time because CASE was going to entirely obliterate the computer programming field in five years. Hmm. Hmm. So here we are, almost 20 years later, or maybe not 15, right, 17 years later. And oddly enough, um, the IT industry has gotten like a lot bigger, <laughs> <laughs> and so and, and you know and, and for those that don't know, right, Case was all about um, building applications by connecting little pictures Dranky together. Drampy. Yeah, right? that's what it was about. And so all we're doing is revisiting something that was tried seventeen years ago, and it didn't work then. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is. Why are things different now? I mean, what, what makes us think it seems that it might to me, work now?
1: It seems to me, and Rory might have a different idea, but it seems to me that case tools can never sort of keep up with the demands that a language can. A language is ultimately flexible. A case tool just has too much logic and isn't adaptable enough. And you, you have know? to build it with something. You I have mean. to build it with something, that's right, and you have to continuously add to its intelligence and... And that kind of architecture for computer programming just doesn't exist
2: yet.
3: At least not yet. It has to learn.
2: We talked about it at the BOF session we did on on Sunday night at TechEd. And I think what we eventually all agreed on was that language is just much more expressive. Sure. That's really what it kind of came down to for us, I think, was that there's only so much you can do. But for us, at least, language is just much more expressive.
1: Yeah. And somebody makes the point that seventeen years ago the hardware was not big enough and fast enough, but you know what? It's still not big enough and fast. It's actually not that it's big enough and fast enough, but you can't I mean, there isn't there isn't the intelligent software, you know, true intelligent software that's able to write itself and to modify and to learn. And that's really what you need in a case tool. You have to be able to have a conversation with it and tell it to do something this way instead of that way and then have it do it. Uh, You know, it has to be, it has to learn.
3: Well, typically, from what I experienced, the reason that case projects failed was because people would use a case tool and would generate the system. But the generation, of course, really came out as a 3GL, a COBOL or whatever it was, RPG. And then they would edit that because the case tool couldn't express everything they needed to express. Case tools are just code generators. Right, so this comes back to the whole discussion of whether code gen is good, right? So you would gen your system, you would alter the code, and then the user would come along and say, "Oop, we need to tweak it." Well, when you tweak it, then you regen the system, and all of your code is gone.
1: <laughs> right.
3: And you know it was this monumental problem, and right you know, maybe we've solved that. You know maybe there are... With
1: partial classes and things like that.
3: Yeah, you know, who knows? It's, uh,
1: and I really think Kathleen's approach, which is you know writing your own tools that do that, you know, gives you some of the best of both worlds because you can use the language to be expressive and you can modify and you can you can constantly update it because you're writing the code that writes the code. Yes. So that's, well, that's know, a it's good the, step.
3: The company I work for, Magenic, they, has a, we've got our own code generator for CSLA, and that's exactly what we've done over time is is what Kathleen talks about where we've constantly been adding new and extra capabilities to it. Yeah, and then it works. Right? Yeah. That actually is a practical solution, but right. not it's a far cry from what Case was promising.
1: Right. Sure. So what's next in terms of uh for you in terms of conferences or uh events that you're going to be doing?
3: Well, let's see. I've got a, an architecture tour I'm doing in the middle of June through Florida and uh, in Birmingham, Alabama. And then VS Live is in New York. And then uh, what else? I'm going to Amsterdam for Tech Ed Europe.
1: Oh, that'd be fun.
3: I'm looking forward to that.
1: Yeah. What did you do at Tech Ed? I don't think we got a chance to interview you at Tech Ed, did we?
3: Nope, we did not. I, I saw you a few times, but never got to really talk in depth.
1: Yeah, we're making a movie.
3: I, I, I saw Rocks, it on your website. That's good.
1: Rocks the movie. So, um, are you gonna? Did you say Dev Teach was one of the things you're gonna be at, or no?
3: Uh, no, I'm not doing that.
1: Okay, so the next time I'll see you is probably, uh, gee, con- not connections, in uh, November. Will it be?
3: Um, boy, you know, and I don't think I'm gonna be able to make that show. So. Oh really? It may be a while.
1: <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, you know what we'll do is we'll send you, like, a video camera and have you uh, sort of give us a tour around your, your place and a day in the life of Rocky Latka, and you could send us the tape. There uh, you go. Sure.
3: Documentary style.
1: Rockumentary style, pal.
3: <laughs> Better still.
1: Yeah. Oh, this is great. So, Rory, you got anything to uh, to add as we start wrapping up the show?
2: Well... I just think data sets suck. <laughs> well, you have a friend in Rocky Latka. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, it, it's it's interesting hearing people actually discuss data sets because I don't usually even give them that much time, you know? Yeah. And somebody says data set, and I do that thing from the Austin Powers movies where Dr. Evil goes, oh, nope. Dip. Nope. Dope. Mm, I just I just don't like them. I like writing my business objects from scratch and having everything just be nice and, and exactly how I want. Encapsulating everything and yeah. and defining how I want things to be serialized and, and just I like to have just full control over all the goop. Yeah. You know. I, I, I it I. I but it takes you know me though. Longer, though. You know. I don't. Well, it actually doesn't. If you really, if you're really really into it and you kind of get a rhythm down, it's actually not that bad at all. It really isn't. I mean, maybe you'll add some extra time, yeah. But in my opinion, the end result is something that's much nicer to work with.
1: Rocky, what do you think about that? The time it takes? It you takes know, more I, time, doesn't it?
3: I I think the answer is in frameworks, and especially on an enterprise level. if you All of that control, because I agree, you want control. You want to be able to do what you need to do for your environment. But if you do it right, you can do it once get it into a framework, yeah. and then reapply it on subsequent projects. Because, you know, for me at least, within a given organization, after you figured out what works in their physical architecture, it probably is going to work on almost every application they do. Yeah. And so if you do it right, I don't think it actually adds much time, especially when you compare it to the benefit that you get.
1: Okay, cool. You know, we uh, Joe Grenier, who's a regular listener... He has implemented your, uh, your architecture at his company, which is an insurance company, out in Rhode Island, very, very successfully, and has great things to say about it.
3: Well, that's so wonderful.
1: It, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. And I'd like to invite the listeners now at 11.50 uh, p.m. to, uh, if they know the, uh, the secret namespace of the week, to go to the website right now. And enter that in. And the prize we're giving away tonight is actually an Xbox wireless adapter. It uh, is a eight oh excuse me, excuse me. It is an eight oh two eleven G Wi Fi adapter for the Xbox. So if you have an Xbox and you uh, want, and you're on Xbox Live, and you want to uh, hook it up wireless, here it is. And we're going to throw in a couple of Xbox games. Couple of shirts, and what else do we have in the box here? Hang on a second.
3: Get up and walk over to the box. <laughs> yeah, you know, I drilled holes in my wall to run a wire to my Xbox. Wow. One of these adapters <laughs> would have been a much better idea.
1: <laughs> All right, looks like we have a copy of uh, uh, Amped Two Xbox game that we're going to throw in there. So it's a sort of an Xbox. Uh, Accessory Day here at .NET Rocks. And uh, somebody says system.rory.datasets.sucks. No, that's (laughs) not it. (laughs) And for those people who are entering in the namespace in the chat room, I'm sorry that's not going to work. You have to go to the website and type it in. So while you're doing that, I'll just ask uh, Rocky if he's got any last-minute comments or anything that uh, he wants to say before we go.
3: Uh, no, I just uh, really want to thank you for the opportunity to you know get back on the show. It was fun last time, and it was fun this time, and uh, you know it's always good to talk to you guys.
1: Always good to talk to you, and I really enjoy the time that we uh, you know when we get do get together at some of these conferences, the discussions that we have, and uh, the one in particular that was really cool was the party that I threw for the Orlando .dot net Users Group when we were in Orlando at Dev Connections.
3: That was yeah. cool that that was great we were, you and i sitting there and I, I don't know there must have been half a dozen yep. people from the user group and we were just all having a great conversation great about conversation. a lot of stuff it was wonderful
1: and uh, Eddie Risio was there and he's one of our uh, listeners and prize winners a big fan and uh, just a bunch of people came and we you know we got like hors d'oeuvres and we had the guys with the tuxes you know putting out chicken wings and stuff and and we went out and bought actually rocky you and i went to the liquor store and we bought like 300 dollars worth of beer and wine right
3: yeah, so how much of that was left over? That's what a I want to A lot
1: out. of it was left over. And I
3: <laughs> <laughs> I told you it was too much.
1: Uh well, I don't know. You know, I didn't know how many people were coming, but I left uh I left about three cases of beer as a tip for the wait for the for the guys that uh you know, the bellhops, the bell stand.
3: I, I think the answer is that the, the, the geek type people down in Florida need to drink more. <laughs> this is the problem.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Okay, well, the winner of this uh, Namespace of the Week contest this week is none other than Eddie Garman from Synaptic Pop in North Carolina. Yay! (laughs) Yay, bravo. Uh And it was system.rocky.latka.rocks was the secret namespace. Space? Spake? Secret namespace. (laughs) Namespace. It was his namespace who took the ring. I don't know and uh you're going to win uh the uh Xbox stuff and all that good happy horseshit. so <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry it's not a windows server 2003 but you know our supply ran out we're trying to get some more but in the meantime you can uh you know talk to uh, microsoft and ask us to send us ask him to send us some swag so see you rory see you later Carl. got see any shouts outs i have no all right I'll see you, Rocky. Thanks for coming on the show. All right. Good night now.
2: Good night, everybody.